0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brotemarkle, and coming up on this week's program, Neil Hurley, author of the book Florida's Lighthouses in the Civil
2: War. With lighthouses located throughout the state along the coastlines, which were the main arteries of transportation, um, lighthouses were impacted by the Civil War, uh, they were fought over, they were shot at. Uh, people captured lighthouses. DDT
0: was developed for use as an insecticide in Orlando during World War II.
3: There's a period of about 20 years, and I'd say 1950 to 1970, that every place in Florida used thermal fog machines and every place that they were,
0: all the kids ran in and out of it all summer. We'll look at industries that have vanished in the Sunshine State, all that ahead on Florida Frontiers.
4: I'm a lighthouse worn by the weather and the waves I keep my lamp lit To warn the sailors on their way I'll tell a story Paint you a picture from my past I was so happy this life so long
0: last. 21 lighthouses lined Florida's coast when the Civil War began in 1861. By the time the war ended in 1865, 14 of those lighthouses had been damaged. It took more than six years to restore all of Florida's lighthouses to working condition. Neil Hurley is author of the book, Florida's Lighthouses in the Civil War. Hurley says that his goal is to set the record straight about Florida's lighthouses.
2: People don't know about that there was a civil war that occurred in Florida. And with lighthouses located throughout the state along the coastlines, which were the main arteries of transportation, um, lighthouses were impacted by the civil war. Uh, they were fought over. They were shot at. Uh, people captured lighthouses. So they're a real integral part. And even if the object of an invasion wasn't a lighthouse, then it may have been used as a lookout post or uh, the site where they first sighted the Union inv- invasion force.
0: As Hurley explains in his book, many of Florida's lighthouses had undergone renovations and modernization just before the Civil War began.
2: Lighthouses at the time of the Civil War uh, had just undergone a, a modernization work. They were the technological marvels of their time. Uh, Think of a skyscraper back at the time of the Civil War. Think of the most modern, scientifically proved lighting apparatus. Uh, The lenses, everything that went into them, was uh, top of the top technology of their day.
0: Florida was a Confederate state during the Civil War, but as Neil Hurley points out, many of Florida's lighthouses remained under Union control.
2: That's correct. Unlike other parts of the South, uh, all of the Florida Keys stayed under. Um, control by Union forces. And what the reason that they were maintained under Union control was because there were lighthouses in the, off the coast of the Florida Keys. It wasn't a occupation or and it wasn't a, a sure hold because the uh, Union sailors and ships that were sailing off of the Keys were always concerned that uh, Confederates would come down and destroy lighthouses there.
0: One of the most exciting naval confrontations off of Florida's coast during the Civil War was a blockade off of Fernandina Beach. In
2: 1862, there was a Confederate privateer called the Jeff Davis, which captured a Union merchant ship in the mid-Atlantic Ocean. Uh, They put aboard a Confederate prize crew of 10 men, and their intent was to sail it back to Florida, where they could sell the cargo and then use the proceeds uh, to finance the, the privateering expedition. As the ship was approaching Fernandina, when it was within sight of the the lighthouse on Amelia Island, um, a Union blockading vessel, the USS Jamestown, intercepted it. It caused the Alvarado, to uh, the crew of the Alvarado, to run it aground, and Union sailors from the ship came over, from the Jamestown, came, uh, set the Alvarado on fire, uh, and then rode back to their ships and escaped. In his
0: book, Florida's Lighthouses in the Civil War, Neil Hurley tells the story of how a moonlight reflection almost led to a mistaken arrest in 1862.
2: In 1862, along the St. John's River, um, there was a lighthouse which still exists. It's now called, generally known as the Mayport Lighthouse. And on one night, some Union troops in the area saw a signal light from the top of the lighthouse tower. They came and they arrested the lighthouse keeper, Uh, His wife was very upset and uh, excited that her husband had been arrested as a traitor to the local Union troops. Well, fortunately, the next night, the Union troops were back in the same area. They looked up at the top of the tower, and they discovered that the light that they had seen was actually just the moon reflecting on the the windows of the lighthouse. Um, And so they promptly released the, the lighthouse keeper and set him free.
0: The Cape Canaveral Lighthouse is today located on Air Force property and access to it is very limited. Mills Burnham was the lighthouse keeper at Cape Canaveral during the Civil War. Neil Hurley says that Burnham was not a loyal Unionist, as many people believe. The
2: story that's come down through history is that Mills Burnham was a a loyal um, Federalist or Northern person and that he did all these things to return equipment. But if you look at the historical record, um, it's actually a bit different. Uh, The amazing thing about it is that he went through the Civil War strongly supporting the the Confederate government. Um, One of his sons was a Confederate soldier who died in Chattanooga. Uh, His assistant keeper went off and fought for Confederate forces. And he had many opportunities to return equipment to Northern authorities, yet he kept it uh, and corresponded corresponded closely with Confederate authorities. Um, Despite all that, at the end of the war, he did return equipment to the federal government, and he maintained good enough graces that although he had been supporting the Confederate government during the war, he retained his position as um, lighthouse keeper after the Civil War, Uh, one of the few occurrences where someone had served for the Confederate government in a responsible position like that and and still uh, stayed on for the federal government after the war.
0: If you visit graveyards in Egmont Quay and St. Augustine, you may experience a feeling of deja vu. There are many tombstones in both places that have the same names carved into them. Neil Hurley explains why.
2: During the Civil War, there were uh, more than a dozen Confederate sailors who were buried on Egmont Quay in the lighthouse graveyard. Uh, Most of them had died of yellow fever. There were a few that had died of gunshot wounds, so accidental discharges of their guns, and they were buried at Egmont Quay. Um, at that time, Civil War burials were done just wherever haphazardly they could be done. And it wasn't until the early 1900s that there was an effort by the federal government to consolidate war dead into national cemeteries. Um, part of that effort involved going to Egmont Key and recovering the headstones and the bones of uh, deceased sailors and reinterring them in St. Augustine where they're now buried in the National Cemetery at St. Augustine. Uh, In the last few years, however, they've found more bones on Egmont Key. They don't have the headstones, so they don't know which bones uh, from which people they came from. And so the concern was is that there's still a graveyard on Egmont Key and one here at St. Augustine. To resolve that, they've re-established the cemetery. They've re-established cross grave markers at Egmont Key. And so now you have grave markers at Egmont Key with the names of uh, the deceased there and headstones at St. Augustine with the same names. Um, And probably uh, it is the same people that are buried in both locations. They didn't collect all of the bones when they went there.
0: For decades, rumors have circulated that the Pensacola Lighthouse has an underground chamber and passageway. Hurley says that, like many legends, there is a bit of truth in this story.
2: Oral histories are are really fascinating, and when I hear oral history stories about lighthouses, um, some of them sound really bizarre and unbelievable. One story I heard was that there was an underground passageway connecting the lighthouse at Pensacola with nearby Fort Brancus, a Civil War air fort. That sounded very outrageous because of the work involved in creating something like that. But, in fact, there is an underground cistern that was used for water storage at Pensacola Lighthouse. And there are many accounts of a covered way or underground passageway uh, that ran near the lighthouse to the fort. Well, the kernel of truth that I was able to uncover with that was that, at the time, a covered way was a military term used for a trench, which was used to conceal troop movements uh, from one gun-, gun battery to the next. Uh, so the Confederates built this trench so they could move men and arms back and forth to different gun batteries without Union forces on at Fort Pickens being able to see them. So there was a covered way. It was an underground passageway, but in our terms that we use today, we think of underground as meaning a tunnel. Um, so the, the truth is, is that there's an underground cistern, there was a covered way. Um, However, that doesn't equal a tunnel going from the lighthouse to the fort.
0: When Neil Hurley speaks, it's evident that he's just as passionate about the restoration and preservation of Florida's lighthouses as he is about documenting their history.
2: Florida has a sort of a mixed bag of preservation successes and failures when it comes to lighthouses in different parts of Florida. Uh, There are some great successes, uh, particularly uh, lately in the Apalachicola area in the Florida Panhandle. Cape St. George Lighthouse Uh, was undermined by the ocean and and collapsed. A local group of volunteers collected the bricks from that, cleaned them, uh, more than 14,000 bricks, uh, raised funds, worked with the state, and they have rebuilt the lighthouse using the bricks from the old lighthouse uh, and re-erected it on St. George Island, where it will now be accessible to tourists and visitors, um, making it a a fantastic attraction, uh, almost better than it was in its old site, on an isolated uh, barrier island. While there, we've seen those successes, there are other parts of Florida uh, where lighthouses have been largely forgotten. Um, and Unfortunately, forgotten lighthouses are, are antique structures that have all the problems of 100-plus-year-old buildings. Um, if you don't stay on top of the maintenance on them, um, they will fall apart. In addition to that, you have structures that are in the seacoast environment Uh, that are getting all the salt spray, uh, shoreline erosion. Um, There are many lighthouses that need our help, um, or they will fall into the ocean and and be lost to us forever.
0: Neil Hurley is author of the book, Florida's Lighthouses in the Civil War. To order a copy, just go to www.myfloridahistory.org and click on Books and Gifts. You're listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. They paved paradise,
4: put up a parking lot. seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. Hey farmer, farmer, put away that DDT now. Give me spots on my apples or leave me the That you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Paradise, put up a parking lot.
0: DDT was first synthesized by a German chemist in 1874, and its use as an insecticide was discovered in 1939. During World War II, DDT was developed for use as an insecticide in Orlando. As Janie Gould reports, DDT was widely used to control mosquitoes in Florida before it proved to be hazardous to birds and other wildlife.
5: When John Bidler became director of the Indian River Mosquito Control District in 1955, there was no shortage of the noxious little creatures. Mosquitoes were often so thick that 50 to 100 of them would land on a human tester in a minute or less.
3: When I first came, they were using some uh, mist blowers and uh, dusting machines. They were quite cumbersome, so we began using what's called a thermal fog machine which took the insecticide, which was dissolved in diesel oil, heated it up to 1,000 degrees, and then when you spray it out into the air, it comes out as a vapor and makes a huge cloud of fog, which, uh, if they had the right insecticide, kills the mosquitoes. And also unfortunately it attracts children.
5: I remember <laughs>
3: Yes. Every Everybody kid, does.
5: Every kid in town ran through that fog. That's,
3: that's right. There is a period of about twenty years, and I'd say nineteen fifty to nineteen seventy, that every place in Florida used thermal fog machines and every place that they were, all the kids ran in and out of it all summer and I mean you know, it didn't wipe out a generation of kids. That's Not for sure. yet
5: anyway. <laughs> so. Did you have any close calls with kids?
3: Anytime we saw a lot of kids running in and out, we made announcements that if we saw that sort of thing going on, we weren't going to fog those areas because we thought it was dangerous, not because of the DDT or the BHC or whatever it was, but actually because of traffic. Cars zipped in and out of that fog, and we were just scared to death that some kid was going to get run over. Anything ever happened? And it never did. Parents could instantly tell whether the kids had been doing this. They couldn't come in the house and say, oh, I wasn't in the fog. It <laughs> smelled they, like DDT. They, well, DDT didn't have any odor. There's the diesel oil that had the odor.
5: Because I remember it, that odor.
3: Oh, yes. Vividly. Yeah. We had people who always thought we were going too fast. The fastest we ever went was five miles an hour, which was a big problem because you just couldn't get anywhere. In four hours, you'd go 20 miles, and 20 miles of streets is not very far. Mosquito
5: control workers switched to late-night fogging when fewer kids and cars were on the roads. DDT was banned in 1972. On balance, are we better with or without DDT?
3: I think we're much worse off if you're looking at the world picture. DDT was the absolute ideal material to treat malaria. In all of the third world countries, practically speaking, they're third world because of malaria. And malaria is such a debilitating disease. In the first place, it kills over a million people a year.
5: In the developing world, health workers used to control mosquitoes by painting the
3: interior walls of homes with DDT. The mosquito comes in through the open window, it bites the person that's in there, and then its habit is to go to the walls and rest. Well, it would rest on the walls and get killed, and therefore you'd break the cycle of transmission. They didn't fly out, rest somewhere, and then bite somebody else. The Gates Foundation, for instance, is putting billions of dollars into studies as to how to control malaria. And one of the things they're thinking about is going back to DDT and using it for residual. In that particular instance, it is a perfectly safe material to use. DDT is not especially toxic to people. Lord knows I've been soaking wet with it so much that you wouldn't believe it. That was a problem with birds and parts of the environment, but that was not for medical use at all. That was all through agriculture. For medical uses, it's never been condemned.
5: John Beidler participated in the first experiments using DDT on mosquitoes. That was in 1942 in Brevard County. He's retired now. In the book Mosquito Wars, author Gordon Patterson says Beidler has spent more than 60 years in a conversation with mosquitoes.
0: Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report.
4: Hey, farmer, farmer, put away the DDT now. Give me spots on my apples or leave me the birds and the bees. But you don't know what you've got till it's gone. The pay paradise put up a parking lot. Ooh, I said, don't it always seem to go? But you don't know what you've got till it's gone. The pay paradise put up a parking lot. The pay paradise put up a parking lot. Ooh,
0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. What do ostrich plumes, Spanish moss, and turpentine have in common? As Bill Dudley reports, each represents an industry that has vanished from the Sunshine State.
3: This is where our studio used to be. Uh, Our stage was right here where these palm trees are.
1: At the time of this 1992 interview, Sidney Vaughn was one of the last survivors of the Jacksonville movie industry, which for a time led the world in silent film production before being driven out by changes in the political climate of the city after World War I. Today almost nothing remains of the 30 odd studios or the people who worked here.
3: People in Jacksonville just don't believe that I worked in the movie business in those
1: Uh, that's a long time ago. But the Jacksonville movie business is just one Florida industry existing only in memory. Raising ostriches for their plumes or processing Spanish moss for upholstery stuffing are two other examples. Both were big business in their time.
3: My dear
1: mother,
4: she prayed this for me. She says, I'm on my son.
1: A Florida turpentine worker sings a sad song in a 1935 WPA field recording. Before World War II, thousands of African Americans worked long hours collecting pine sap for turpentine. Known as the naval stores industry, it was both brutal and exploitive.
6: Most people, when I speak to them and I talk about turpentining as a major industry in Florida at the latter part of the 1800s and early part of the 1900s, they have absolutely no idea that this ever existed at all in the state.
1: Florida International University labor historian Peggy Wilson.
6: Probably of all of all of the kinds of things, the kind of work that people did in Florida, this was amongst the worst in terms of the way people were were, were treated. I mean there are terrible stories about peonage and people being kept in virtual slavery in these very isolated camps. Most of the workers, the people who did the worst, the hardest, the dirtiest of the work were African-Americans who were not necessarily there because they wanted to be there.
1: But other Florida industries are dying even today. The 1998 environmental cleanup and reflooding of the muck farms surrounding Lake Apopka near Orlando ended a $60 million industry, leaving some 1,500 farm workers without jobs.
6: Even if we are aware of the fact that the livelihood they had before was a very difficult one and very underpaid, at least it was a livelihood and at least there was a community now with the issues of pollution, which we are all very sensitive and aware of, and the need to address some of the mistakes of the past, it seems that there have been people who have become the victims of progress without adequately addressing what will happen to them, what happens to to the humans who are displaced as these changes take place. And I think that's something that we as Floridians need to be sensitive to and aware of. Born
1: here. Born here, 1923. My dad built boats right over there next door. In the village of Cortez near Sarasota, commercial fisherman Alci Taylor reflects on an industry effectively shut down by a ban on net fishing a few years we ago. We made boats out of cypress and all that back then. what wasn't the fiberglass and natural crook cedar timbers and that type of things. They had to go in the woods and cut timbers to make the boats. Although the residents of Cortez are working hard to preserve their cultural heritage from what they consider destructive development, at least one Florida town has done well despite the loss of its principal industry.
3: See the
1: On the sponge docks in Tarpon Springs, sightseers line up to watch a diver retrieve sponges from the Gulf. Greek divers made tarpon springs the world leader in sponge production until just after World War II when a blight wiped out most of the sponge beds. The Greeks stayed and today the town and much of its heritage is preserved as a thriving tourist destination on Florida's west coast. But can the true culture of a place ever be frozen in time? Peggy Wilson points to the colorful cigar industry once centered around Ybor City near Tampa, an area now reinventing itself as an upscale playground with a Latin theme.
6: Some would argue that that it's better now than it was maybe 20 years ago when it was simply in a state of of decay, when the neighborhood had declined and no one very much wanted to live there. But it's now basically a service industry, fairly low paid, and even the artists Are being, as I understand it, forced out because although it's service industry, the rents are high because you've got all of the bars and the restaurants. So it's uh, at a curious crossroads and it will be interesting to see what the future brings forth.
1: I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report is produced by the Florida Humanities Council.
4: Hey, I'm not complaining because I really need the work, but hitting my buddies got me feeling like a jerk. $100 $100 car, no 200 red. I get a check on Friday, but it's already spent Working for a living working. working for a living working. working for a living Living and I'm working I'm taking what they're giving Cause I'm working for a living
0: been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week and visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokmarkle.